Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Hey everyone, this is Bryce Merriman. Like most people, I think the issue of homelessness was something that was tragic. It was sad. It obviously represented a failure in some way. And personally, you know, I gave money to folks. I gave money to charities. I would occasionally share food with people if I had extra food. But by and large, to my lived everyday urban experience, it was something that was in the background. And today I'd like to share with you the story of why that all changed for me. And I'm imagining that each of you has your own story about why this issue is affecting to you. But mine might be a little bit different, uh, and the perspective that I have on it might be a little bit different. So I wanted to share that with you. For me, the whole conversation changed in January of 2016, when this area of the city that the city likes to refer to it as the East Duwamish Greenbelt, but colloquially and in the press, everyone refers to it as the jungle. And the jungle has been a homeless encampment, an informal settlement, however you want to describe it, really since the days of, you know, Hoovervilles during the Depression. What happened on that day in January of 2016 was that three kids, and they really were kids, age 17, 16, and 13, went into the jungle and they shot two people who were experiencing homelessness who lived there, Janine Zapata and James Tron. And it was it was one of those events in the history of a city that transformed people's consciousness, that everyone knew that the jungle was there and that people were living there but it was one of those issues that was out of sight, out of mind. If, if everyone was going along fine, people seemed to be comfortable with people living in that space. And after that shooting, I think the age of the kids, um, the tragedy of it all, came rushing into the front of everyone's consciousness. And people responded in powerful and divergent ways. And I was one of those people. I didn't know those kids. I didn't know the victims. I really didn't know about the jungle. But as someone whose life and career is built around this issue of being passionate about public space um, and, and the promises that it holds, I had to begin questioning it. Um, you know, what I do for a living, I design spaces. I design outdoor spaces as a landscape architect. I, I make them healthier, more democratic, um, better for an entire community, places where you can learn, places where you can develop emotionally and physically. And this was a tragedy occurring in public space that I didn't understand at all. And, and there was really so much about it that I didn't understand. How did these kids, again, teenagers, barely teenagers in one case, how did these kids come to be in the jungle? Why did they come there? You know, were they looking for trouble? Were they looking to score drugs? Were they looking to have a, a thrill killing, as they used to say? 
What brought them there? And more importantly, what were the stories of the victims? What brought them there? How were they in this situation that it made them so easy to be preyed upon and to be victimized? Will their families ever know about their final hours? Will they ever understand it? Will they care? To me, it all all really just seemed so senseless, so incomprehensible, so uh, undercutting of, of these ideals that we hold close to us as Americans, as people who are supposed to be bound together by this social contract. I think it's important maybe to, to take a step back here and talk a little bit about where the jungle is physically. The city of Seattle was glaciated about 10,000 years ago, and as the glaciers retreated from the city, they scraped it in these north to south ridges. And so the jungle sits on the side of one of those ridges as it falls away into the, into the river valley that Seattle has. It's on this kind of steepish slope. And when they built I-5 going into the center of the city, they had to go across this slope. So I-5 is really a series of long bridges supported over this slope that cuts underneath it, heading into downtown Seattle for maybe two miles, something like that. There's a small gap between the bottom of the bridge and the land below it that, if you're experiencing homelessness, is the perfect spot to be in many ways. It's about, varies from 10 feet to 80 feet maybe, so you have a ceiling, it is dry, it's a place to take refuge from the rain, it's loud because you have cars driving overhead, you have the expansion joints clanging underneath there, but it's out of the way and no one would bother you. That was until the shooting. And now all the eyes in the city were on it. Now in the community conversation that followed, two basic responses emerged. The first was really about empathy towards the people living in the jungle and figuring out how we as a city could help them. It was led by people like Councilmember Bagshaw, who I first interviewed in the first podcast, and started asking questions about how can we make these people get into situations, get into places that are safer, that sanitation, where they can store their belongings during the day. How do we begin to create public facilities that bring some sense of stability to the people who are living in this somewhat precarious situation? And as stories emerged in the local media, I think the, the sympathy level in the city raised up quite a bit. You know, there were stories about how there were rats just infesting this area. They were talking about how people's feet were rotting because it was wet all the time and, and you know, they were getting skin diseases. One person told us this awful story of someone who had an addiction who was passed out and got run over by heavy machinery. Another woman was raped just a few feet from thousands, literally thousands of people driving in their cars on I-5. And these were stories that maybe the police knew about, maybe emergency responders knew about. But all of a sudden, they became seeping into the public's consciousness. And, 
you know, it, it's hard not to have your heart go out to that community and think, what can we do to make it better, their situation better? Now, at the same time, there was a second response, and this response was driven by different concerns for safety. It was noting that the activities that were going on within the jungle, particularly beneath I-5, had created some larger public safety issues. I've already mentioned about the instances of rape, the instances of assault amongst members of the jungle. There was definitely public safety issues. Compounding those issues was a sense by ambulance drivers, some fire responders, some police responders, that they didn't feel comfortable going into that space as one squad car, they would they would need to have, you know, a, a small cluster of squad cars. For ambulance drivers, they wouldn't go in there without a police escort, same with fire responders. And for our state's DOT, they had issues going in there without any sort of emergency services escort. There were stories of maintenance workers being attacked. There were stories of fire and arson underneath there, there's a report that was produced with just piles of propane tanks underneath this bridge that was carrying, you know, again, thousands of motorists above it. And WashDOT, uh, the local Department of Transportation, they needed to have their bridge joints replaced. Um, this was this was an aging section of freeway. It needed to have some maintenance done to it that, that had not been done for quite some time. The other piece that was going on, and, and this might be what Sarah Dooling called ecological gentrification was that there were either open sewers or there were storm drains that had been turned into sewers. There was damage to the vegetation. So there was all these sort of concerns about public sanitation, public health, and an attendant pest problem that went along with that environmental degradation. So there was a long public conversation that went on about the future of the jungle. And during that conversation, uh, social service providers were engaged to reach out to the members of the jungle and figure out if there was a, a better opportunity for them elsewhere. And during that outreach, some of them accepted it. Some of them decided, you know what, this, is, this isn't working for me anymore. I want to move into a shelter. I want to move into... Um, a different situation. I'm ready to wrestle with addiction demons or mental health demons that I hadn't been able to confront yet. This is, this is the time to do it. But I think the vast majority of people still found that for them, living outdoors in these informal type encampments was the right choice at that point, which means they got moved, which means they were moved out of the jungle and they had to find a different place to go. They moved to different areas. They moved to different parcels of public lands. Some people moved to different bridge underpasses. Passes. Others moved to more precarious landscapes along the freeway. Um, and, you know, little slivers of land in between different overpasses and underpasses. And they kind of continued to move after the jungle was, quote unquote, shut down. Now, for me, watching all this transpire in the newspapers, on the radio, I didn't understand it. Um, it seemed so strange, so foreign to me. All of it, really. Like, 
like starting starting from from the first phase of it, I I didn't understand the phenomenon of of homelessness. Why in in Seattle, um, but anywhere in the United States, where we have a somewhat outsized wealth, why was this happening? Why were people finding it that, that they needed to make the choice to live outdoors in you know, we don't have extreme temperature ranges, but it's very wet here during the winter. Why were they choosing to do that? What were people going through who were experiencing homelessness? Had they been victims of something? What had brought them to that state? Was it solely mental health or drug issues? Was it they got priced out and couldn't afford to pay rent? What was going on within each of their lives that brought them to that spot? And third, and really this is the motivating force for this conversation in many ways, was this question, what rights did the people who were experiencing homelessness have to that public space? And, and for me, this was, this was a profound question. I mean, this cuts to the core of who, when I look in the mirror, I see myself as. Maybe it's time for me to take a step back and, and talk a little bit about my history. So I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C. and Maryland. And the National Mall, that, that grand lawn stretching from the United States Capitol to the Lincoln Memorial and bounded by museums and those amazing elms, the memorials, was the landscape of my youth. I mean, as much as any neighborhood park was where I played sports, the National Mall was both the center of my recreational landscape my civic landscape, my patriotic landscape. Because I, when I was growing up there, you know, I knew this history of the mall and, you know, the anti-war marches, uh, the various rallies, the power of Dr. King's speech that was delivered there. And in my youth, I saw, you know, the AIDS quilt unfurled. I saw eco-building competitions. I saw pro-pot rallies. I saw million-man marches, uh, anti-abortion rallies. Every imaginable sector of society came to occupy that space and it was flexible and majestic and at the same time it was also the space where on the 4th of July I remember standing in the middle of the reflecting pool with Abraham Lincoln to my back and watching the fireworks explode over the Washington Monument. So I, I just was continually awed by the capacity of this open space to fill with so many people and their passions, whether angry or joyful, um, and that its capacity, the flex, was in some ways for me a metaphor for our democracy's capacity to flex and to evolve and to change and to, um, and to grow, to encompass new things. And I think that early on, this experience with the mall hit me hard in ways that I'm still learning about. Um, at the center of my version of it, American democracy wasn't a president uh, or congressperson. It wasn't a corporation or, or the abstraction of the courts, nor a document. For me, in a very tangible way, the center of American democracy was this open space and all the people from so many walks of life who could fill it near the center of the city that I grew up near. It represented the opportunity to express oneself, to gather, to say what you wanted, to believe what you wanted, to 
come together as a people. And in many ways, that flexible, accommodating, dynamic, adaptable space was echoed in every single public space afterwards, whether it was a street, whether it was a park, whether it was a remnant piece of land. It was pregnant with these possibilities that were deeply patriotic to me. Uh, And I think it's why I chose the career I did. It's why I spent my life protecting, planning, and designing public spaces, because each of them was that tiny echo of that space on the National Mall. So into that, I began to ask this question of how did homelessness reconcile with these public spaces? Does it indict them in some way? Is it a failure? Does it strengthen them? Do public spaces exclude people experiencing homelessness or do they accommodate them graciously? I really didn't know the answers to these relatively simple questions. And I hadn't had anyone in my education really talk about them in a meaningful way, which got me to thinking about my responsibility and our responsibility as shapers, as makers, as planners of the built environment. And asked whether or not there was a responsibility within these public spaces to provide sanitation, to provide places for housing, uh, safe layouts of dwellings, making people safe from environmental hazards like, you know, steep slopes, for example. One of the things I saw shortly after the people were moved out of the jungle was there was a landslide that would have wiped out several of the tents that that were there. These are the types of things that our professional licenses say that we're supposed to do. But what did it mean in the context of this population? I also felt like I had a number of tools that I could use from this design training to address the challenges, but I had never considered using them and I didn't understand why. I struggled with that. I still struggle with that. In the weeks and months that are ahead, I think there's three ways that we can show up to this conversation. People who care about public space, people who care about the well-being of those who are experiencing homelessness, and work with that community and learn from them about, first, how to create empathetic public spaces. Places that don't exclude, places that invite, places that dignify. The second is asking this question about how our public lands can support housing first strategies. Housing first strategies are those that say, we want you to get sheltered first. We're not going to require you to get clean. We're not going to require you to give up your pet. We're not going to require you to abandon your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. We want you to get housing. And that's the priority. And is there a role for public space to play in that conversation? And the third conversation that we need to have is structuring our land use policies in a way that helps prevent people from falling into homelessness. That's probably a bigger conversation. That's one that focuses on zoning, that focuses on land use regulations. But it's equally as important as either of those other ones, because as members of the public, as people who have political connections, it feels like 
we may have the biggest role to play in making it so that people find places to live that are affordable, that are safe, and that are comfortable for them. So there you have it. Now you know why this project and this podcast exist. Keep on listening. We have some great podcasts coming up in the future. And as always, if you know someone who we should speak with, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Homelandlab at gmail.com. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. Thank you.